Uh, so Reed, and then the last name is Wildermuth. Wildermuth. Is it? It's it's your pseudonym, right? Uh, I've uh, Wildermuth is my birth last name, and I've been going by Reed for about thirty years. So okay. Oh wow! Uh, it's wow. not on my birth certificate, but it's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all right, you know. We won't let the yeah. Does it the, have some meaning for you? you, like the uh, the meaning of the name? Reed? Uh, it, it does actually. Um, I had a dream. Uh, well, right before this happened, uh, in which I was in a room and people were calling out a word that I did not understand, um, and it was a very strange room, very very lucid dream. And then a woman next to me came up to me and, and she tapped me on the shoulder and like, Hey, they're calling you. And I'm like, uh, no, they're not. That's not my name. It's like, no, that's your name. I'm like, no, that is not my name. And I argued with her for a little while. Uh, and so she stopped and, and it looked kind of thoughtful for a moment. And I'm like, Oh, you don't know your name yet. I see. Well, this is the name that you go by later. And, wow. uh, so the next morning I woke up and, um, uh, took that name. So. Yeah, that's how I came about that one. And it's it's had like some fun significance for me later on. So uh, Reed is the Welsh word for ford, uh, a river crossing. Mm-hmm. Oh. And um, later on, so I, I live in Luxembourg now, and one of the primary goddesses of the Celtic Treveri who are here, um, her name was Ritona, uh, and it's the same... Um, uh, Proto-Celtic root, roots of uh, what became the Welsh reed, uh, and her name actually uh, is she of the river crossings. So it it felt pretty significant. Oh, wow! So because, but you moved to Switzerland, you know, much later. Obviously. Luxembourg. Uh, yeah. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Sorry, what did I say? Wow, that's Luxembourg. an interesting yeah, coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I've only been in Luxembourg for three years mm-hmm. now. Um, to be honest, I hadn't really known it existed. <laughs> yeah. Had an idea it's of a it. city but, state, you know, basically. It's, uh, yeah, it's the size of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then a quarter of the population of Rhode Island. One of those old, um, basically uh, offshore, uh, offshore, um, uh, situations, I guess. Yeah. Wow. But you know, your story yeah. about lucid dreaming is kind of fascinating in the way you talk about it. It's almost, I've never heard talk about lucid dreaming like that, except Lynch, <laughs> when you actually take, you, <laughs> when, you know, when you actually take cues from your dreams and take them as serious sure. as, anyth- as anything else, which is why not. I mean, it, it was it was strange back then. I didn't even understand what had happened, but it just made sense the next morning to take that mm-hmm. name. So, um, and yeah, it, it's one of those things that's sort of unfolded in meaning as I've gone on. Interesting. That is interesting. Uh, let's do maybe formal introduction. Yeah. All right. Fine. Yeah. What let's do, do it. Do it's a good, good idea. That? Yeah. <laughs> Smart. Uh, um, I'm the sound woman here. <laughs> I'm the one putting it together. Um, all right. Yeah. So we can, sure. uh, sure, just, yeah. So we're good. We, we yeah. start now. Welcome back to another episode of the Russians. <laughs> yes. Hello. <laughs> hey, uh, we have, uh, an interesting episode. I think, uh, for you today, um, we're talking to, um, Reed Wildermuth, uh, a writer and, and, uh, someone who, I, I, I guess practices and, and teaches, uh, about, you know, pagan kind of ways of seeing and ways of being and, and, and history and politics and how paganism relates 
to our modern world and um, maybe helps us sort of to transcend some of the problems in, in the, the, that surround us. Um, he's a very interesting writer. I've been reading him since uh, probably since the start of the pandemic, although I can't really exactly remember when it was I, I, I started started reading him and, and um, subscribed to his Substack. Um, but he's also the author of, uh, of, of several books and, and one of the, I think the most recent one, correct me if I'm wrong, Reed, um, is Being Pagan. Uh, yeah, actually I have one, uh, collection of essays that just came out a few months ago. Most of those essays were originally on my Substack on, uh, From the Forest of Arduina. But, uh, before that, the primary book was Being Pagan. Yeah, being pagan, and it is a great book, and we'll we'll link to it, um, we'll link to it in the comments. But uh, you know, I I started reading read, I guess, yeah, like I said, during the pandemic, and even from like probably the first thing that I read, which is about, uh, which I kind of and now after reading your book, I realize it was, uh, if maybe it was something that became the introduction to your book, or you reposted uh, the introduction to your book, being pagan. Um, uh, that kind of, you know, laid out your, your argument for, for why paganism matters and why paganism is, it kind of makes sense in, in our modern world. And I really appreciate it because I think, you know, I think it was probably the first thing that I read, the first thing that I, that, that, that made me think about paganism, you know, as something that's serious, you know, um, and that, um, and that isn't just something kind of like, I don't know, like what the savage, it's, it's these primitive peoples before us, uh, believed. And, but it's something that is actually very, very, um, applicable to, to our world today. Um, and something that actually makes a lot more sense from like a spiritual or religious pers- you know, perspective than any of the sort of the, the big organized religions that, you know, that, that, fl- that are floating around and have sway in, 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 in our world. Um, because I, I don't know, like, you know, and at a time uh, when all the things that we sort of depend on for life uh, on our planet here are being strangled and killed and destroyed and are, you know, disappearing, um, uh, it kind of makes sense that, you know, uh, worshipping or, or treating uh, things like your local river uh, or your local forest or even just your local, you know, pack of coyotes that has managed to sort of hold on for dear life in, in, an, in an urban environment Um it makes sense to 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 worship those things uh, because they are truly important and and um, and um, and sacred, you know. Uh, and so, um, and and really, kind of the only things that have any kind of real meaning for us and 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 give us sustenance and sort of you know, uh, uh, we couldn't really live without all these sort of natural things that exist without us, like water from rivers and watersheds and things like that. So it just makes sense to to worship them, you know, or to to revere them in, in a spiritual way. Right. Rather than, you know, some kind of. Well, in short, you're saying he convinced you. He convinced me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> me too. Rather than, you know, some bureaucratic God that sort of is very abstracted from our daily experience. But not just that, you know, I have to say, like, I'm um, was truly taken by your book, actually. And um, in a more also almost like holistic way, because a lot of things sort of make sense practically what you write about. But maybe like, I never really put it together. Do you feel that? In a way, we're living through the end of enlightenment now. And maybe you c- came to terms with it already because you're like, <laughs> um, active, <laughs> um, actively, I don't know, being pagan and practicing paganism or something. So you're not already entrapped with the enlightenment, um, sort of, yeah, ideas. Yeah. So what do, what do you think of it? Yeah. Um, 
I, I'd like to first kind of go back a little bit uh, just to correct mm-hmm. or reorient a word. Uh, I, I don't really look at paganism as a framework of worship. Now, of course, there is lots of reverence and you can specifically worship certain things, but the better way I think of putting it, which, you know, worship works for, I guess, most people, but I feel like that's a bit of a modern um, sort of post-Christian framework of looking at it, uh, informed by Christianity. It, instead, the word relation, which I know can sound very hippie sometimes, but the word relation makes a lot more sense as a description of how I treat the world around me. Um the 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 kind of basic or basis of paganism, which I, I try to argue uh, in that book, is the the being in relationship with, uh, relating to the things around you, not as objects, not as reduced material things, but rather as as living beings, uh, which of course requires us to open up our idea a little bit of what is a being. Um, but, you know, I, I have a relationship with the river that is across the street from me, and I have a relationship with the tree that is behind my house, mm-hmm. and I have a relationship or relationships with all of the plants that I grow in my garden, uh, the plants that are already here, all of the animals, the birds, all of that. Uh, and I guess that the the basic of or basis of that relationship is one of respect and and that can also come off or become worship which is is fine but i i, I want to just make sure that that's stated that that the you start with relationship and then everything else goes on from there you know just in the same way that we have relationships with partners with friends with family etc now to yeah, your question about the enlightenment yeah, yeah. um that um hmm. I, I feel like that could could use several hundred essays uh and at, at some point I do plan on kind of writing a book that traces the trajectory of um Christian political theology into the enlightenment into what we now have but uh, i I think the enlightenment is a lot like the the concept of the dark ages uh when 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 people speak of the medieval medieval period or actually pre medieval period between the fall of Rome and the beginning of uh, Charlemagne's reign, they, they they call that the Dark Ages, as if nothing was happening. And the Enlightenment is the response to the Dark Ages, where we were all living in darkness. Now suddenly we we have light. Uh, we have been illuminated. We now see the world as it should be. And, and, and that requires a belief in a, a bit of a model of progress, I think, that is endemic to the Enlightenment and to all of our current modern problems, especially through capitalism and industrialization. The idea that uh, we go from primitive states of being where we don't know anything and we progress from that into... Uh, more and more and more enlightenment so that we're always closer to a utopian future. And if anything has sort of defined the last 200 years, it's utopian projects and and, light, and the enlightenment was itself a utopian project as well. So to say that I've 
moved past the enlightenment or re- rejected, I think is probably the best way of putting it. But when I mean rejected, I, I don't mean that I reject all of the ideas from it, but I reject what it calls itself. I, I reject its premise, which is that it was somehow a radical break from a past, uh, from a primitive past, that it was a new kind of history in which humans could then find a, a kind of idealistic or utopian and light era, um, uh, you know, end states, uh, that, that, you know, if we just do more rights, rights of man, you know, et cetera, uh, we, we can rule the world through reason and we'll no longer be like those primitive savages who are living just outside of our cities. Yeah. I mean, so I guess it would be, it wouldn't just be, yeah, I sometimes think about this too, because I, I, I also have my kind of, you know, critique of in some enlightenment ideas because they truly sometimes seem, I mean, kind of almost like, you know, just actually patently insane. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I wrote, you know, this, this history of the internet and surveillance valley. And one of the things I didn't really address it in, in the book just because it was a little bit off topic and sort of, uh, tangential to, 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 to directly the history of the military history of the internet. But, but what struck me about, um, you know, the development of the, of this information technology, which is almost like peak enlightenment value, you know, peak, the, the embodiment of everything in, uh, that the enlightenment, um, sort of, um, strive for, kind what's of, right? that? Strive for. Stri- strove for and sort of uh, the, the un- thinking that underpins it. I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, massive industrial uh, sort of projects that underpin this technology, but also an idea to kind of rationalize the world and to make the world transparent for, you know, rational knowledge, right? So organize information, uh, collect it, organize it, use it, you know, act on it rationally, all these things. And one of the things that was just surprising to me is just how, how insane that is. You know, it's like, um, it's like a it's like a person who never wants to leave, you know, never wants to throw away any piece of, you know, anything that they collect. It's like it's a it's a hoarder mentality actually, you know, that you know that I think um you, you sort of if you if you hoard things in your house and you never leave, you know, you never throw anything away, you're you're seen as kind of uh, as, you know, there's a kind of a there's a person who is yeah. into taxonomy into categorization yeah. into little exactly yes <laughs> never throwing anything away, but it was just it's like a sickness but but you know and so one of the things that i you know made me think about the enlightenment i i, I gotta be honest it's kind of probably the first time that i really started thinking about critiquing enlightenment values um in a kind of more um systemic way and um and when i was writing working on that book but i mean in a way um and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the book that you wrote, you know, being pagan is. It seems like, um, you know, there's like the different, there's different sort of. Uh, it's it's coming at it's people come at it from different angles, but you know, we live in a we live in a an essentially a, a world that the Enlightenment has made, you know, and uh, even if people don't really realize it, um, um, you know, we live in this sort of, in this, you know, uh, this denuded world that that the Enlightenment of this utopian project um, has made. And so there is a kind of a, a broader scale, not necessarily a rejection of the Enlightenment because there's really, um, you know, we kind of... You, we're, the world that we live in is built on the Enlightenment, um, but a kind of a reassessment of it, or an attempt to find something different and it's something new and it's something or, or something old, and, and kind of merge you know, the modern world with something older and something more, um, you know, more connected 
more connected to the to the actual uh, our bodies and and to, to the environment in which we live in the, your book you know seems like an, an attempt to do that right to kind of go beyond um or to uh, go beyond but return at the same time you know to to create a new kind of a new step, you know, <laughs> uh, to rediscover something. You yeah. know, that's that's what it seems like. So it's not a total. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I attempt to do that. You know, I, I hope I succeed. Um, w- one thing that I think is really helpful. I mean, of course, I'm. I also, you know, half the time I write about paganism, and the other half, the half of the time I write about politics. Um, and and looking at the way that many outside of Europe or outside of the European stream of history, as it were, uh, have described the, the Western mindset, the Western framework. Um, a lot of people have pointed to the, the fact that it, it, the West is the only one who seems to believe that they are living in a fully different time stream, that they are, that we are, um, you know, we are in the future while the rest of the world is still sort of stuck in the past as if that's something exactly. you can be stuck in. You know, it's, it's a present everywhere. It's everyone's present. Um, but the story that the West tells about itself, um, how it was once dark and primitive and then it, it learned through, you know, first of all, through the Roman <laughs> empire, then through, uh, Christianity and then it, threw off the shackles of Christianity and now is in this completely modern, completely secular state, even though it's neither modern nor secular. I think it, uh, Deepesh Chakrabarty, uh, who is, uh, he's in India, he's a writer on history. In his book, Provincializing Europe, the, the beginning of the book, he, he, he mentions that the Europeans are literally living in the past, but don't notice it. You know, it, I walk around in, in, in any of the cities here and there are very ancient monuments and all of these relics of what Europe actually is, but we call that the past here. Uh, you know, it's the same way in America. Of course, America has a slightly different Sorry, when you say what it actually is, what do you mean by that? Like, like, uh, bloodthirsty. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, that, that's definitely one, one good critique. Uh, you know, there's always the idea that the, the French had the mission civilisatrice, uh, you know, the idea that they could bring civilization to the people that they were colonizing, mm-hmm. um, or literally conquering. And because they were the barbarians, yet they, came into these places as what they believe the barbarians were this this kind of slaughtering group to then bring these people from their primitive past which was of course their present into the the french present or the you know the future as the french would have seen it um everyone else you know looking at that situation can say well wait a minute that that's you're acting pretty savage you're 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 just as brutal as the people that you claim to conquer um and in fact what you are doing is conquering and you're trying to free people from the conquering urge you you're telling a story about yourself that is not true uh and and that sustaining fantasy isn't just a European problem now. It's, it's, it's quite a global problem, but it's written into the enlightenment. It's written into, uh, the capitalist mindset, uh, the industrialization, uh, mindset and, and everything else that there is a future to pull everyone into. 
And please don't look at the things that we are doing right now that show that we're still part of the past. I, one thing that's so I, I'm not Catholic even slightly, but one thing that's really fascinated me by living both in France and now in Luxembourg is how many pagan rituals that supposedly went away 2,000, 3,000 years ago persist within villages here. And these are modern villages. Luxembourg considers itself a modern capitalist state. But uh, in two weeks, uh, actually a little less than two weeks, uh, the people here will celebrate what's called a, a Lishmasteg, which is a very ancient ritual where people, children go around begging for food from everyone. It's tied now to the Catholic calendar of uh, what would be candle mass in English. Um, but this is something that's been happening long before Christianity and very, very, very long before the Enlightenment. Another example, uh, a few months after that, is uh, a, a festival called Burstbrennen, uh, where they burn very large uh, structures. It's, it's, it's very much similar to the, uh, the, the Scottish Beltane or you know, the idea of the wicker man. You be, build a, a huge figure and then, and then you burn it to burn away the winter. This is something that, you know, exists and, and, and Europeans see it as a quaint oddity. Uh, yet it's a, a full continuation of the past that's always been there, just with a slightly different name and a slightly different narrative. But nothing has actually ended. Their past continues here. But, but let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that uh, – well, yeah, just because, you know – well, because I, I imagine that if these these rituals, um, you know, when they were performed 3,000 years ago, I mean, they were a lot more central to the culture, to the society, right? I mean, they were actually kind of um, – you know, they were used to basically mark the passing of the seasons and the change of the seasons. And uh, But are they are they taken seriously now in, in Luxembourg or is this just something that, you know, people kind of um, – like a like, – I don't know. I don't. Maybe. I don't. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's a difference that that doesn't have much of a difference. But it's it's, it's more like seen as a, um, you know, as like some kind of fun uh, cultural thing to do rather than something that has actually you know a deeper meaning to people. Hmm. Do you know I, what I mean? Maybe a good way of looking at this would be tr to turn the the question around a little bit and ask if you know festivals like Christmas still hold meaning. Uh, it, it, it depends on. On, yeah. on who you're asking and, um, you know, and, and what precisely you mean as meaning there, which yeah. I know is kind of a, uh, a trick there. But, uh, you know, if you ask a very devout, um, you know, Baptist in the United States, they're going to tell you something completely different about Christmas than they might than, you know, just someone who just goes to church once a year on Christmas or on Easter. But, if you look at it from outside that American perspective, you could see, okay, well, Christmas is a big deal. It's, it's a continuation of something, but what it precisely means to each person is going to be completely different. And, and you can't really make, uh, reductions to that. And I think that is similar to what happened with these rituals here. If you were to ask my mother-in-law, who has lived in this village her entire life, uh, and her mother and her great-grandmother and her great-great-grandmother, uh, they were all doing this festival. Um, and she's been very sad and disappointed that, that some of these have, have uh, you know, gone away a bit. Uh, not mm -hmm. every village celebrates these anymore. And that's, that's of course, the coming of modernity and, and secularism or what have you. Um, 
and 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 yet they still continue. So it, it's extremely important to her, and her, the meaning that she's got for these these rituals are going to definitely be different from you know what someone else in another village does. But I think the way that she treats them is very similar to what people in the past probably treated them as. It was a it was a meaningful thing that everyone accepted as meaningful, but didn't have the same definition for that. If you, if you look at the, the old harvest festivals or uh, carnival, carnival is a continuation of these, these old festivals. Everyone now, let's say in, in the city of Köln in Germany, uh, which is pretty renowned for its carnival festivals, uh, people get completely, utterly wasted. It is a crazy party that is that, that puts Mardi Gras in New Orleans to shame. Um, are they, you know, is this a religiously significant event for them? Uh, for some of them it is, but it's also a party and it's a relentless nonstop party, which is what the pre-Christian carnival festivals were also, you know, some people took them very seriously. If you do these certain things and you will have a good harvest later on, other people would have approach those festivals and say, hey, it's time to have sex with random people because it's allowed during this time. And I, I think that still continues. I, I think we can't really, uh, going back to the question of the Enlightenment and the way that the Enlightenment has narrated um, our past to us, uh, it, it has this idea that, you know, people took things seriously in a specific way and, oh, they were fools for doing so. But there are plenty of things that we take, that we modern secular people take uh, seriously that anyone else might be like, what, really? Why, why are you doing that? That's, oh, you have a religious belief there. Although we wouldn't recognize it as a religious belief now. Right. Which is interesting. I mean, it's a bit off topic, actually. But um, you know how if you live in the West and you're American, there was always this um, kind of antagonistic relationship about um, American ideology and Soviet ideology. But if you look from the pagan perspective, there's actually no antagonism. Both are like factory-based uh, societies, worshipping machines in a way, and turning people into machines. And so, ultimately, Yash is the one who started thinking about that stuff fairly recently, how if someone from the far future would look back at our society today and would look at this like Cold War, or not Cold War, the renewed Cold War now, and all that um, kind of antagonism, they wouldn't even understand much what is it about. Because the, the, they see it as like a territorial dispute, essentially, mm -hmm. or like a spheres of influence kind of dispute rather than a deep ideological dispute because ultimately... Rather than something profoundly different yeah, spiritually. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. So, yeah, there's like slightly different economies are slightly organized in a different way in terms of um, capital is allocated, you know, and like some pri the priorities of that allocation of capital is is controlled in different manners. But, but yeah, but... I, I think it was through your substack where I, I first started thinking about... Um, some of the metaphysics of Soviet communism, because of course mm -hmm. there's, there, there were all kinds of really, really metaphysical ideas there. I, I think my favorite, um, was the, the stuff about immortality, uh, that, maybe six months ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, there's also plenty of metaphysical, uh, plenty of other metaphysical things that we could say it's just, just very easily the, the, the concept of the worker as a, uh, as a thing, as a symbol, uh, that 
the worker became a religious icon. Of course, the, the worker did not look the same way in every single place. But if you look at the posters, um, it, it it looks like religious art. It's if you were to take, yeah. uh, you know, you flip through any any uh, any issue of one of the Jehovah's Witness magazines, Awake or the Watchtower, you, you see very similar depictions of you know this this idealistic utopian future. And there you have the Soviets doing something that is quite religious. But of course, the Nazis did something very similar as well. And also, though, I think capitalism does the same thing. It's a little harder for us to see it from within. But I, I think if we were able to, you know, look back or to, to fully get ourselves out of this, uh, you know, out of the atmosphere of it and, and, and take enough time to look back at it, we'd say, oh, yeah, you know, why is why do people have an emotional reaction when they see a waving American flag? Why do I still have this emotional reaction? You know, why, why, why would people say that they're willing to die for such a thing? I mean, people were willing to die for religious beliefs before. So maybe, maybe that patriotism is itself a kind of religious belief. There's something metaphysical going on there. I think the enlightenment has helped us or, or has convinced us that we, we are no longer, you know, doing spiritual metaphysical things. And yet I, I think that the problem is we just stopped realizing that most of the things that we are doing are, you know, a cult, you know, magical tech. <laughs> um, no, exactly. It's like we've just have, we have different names for it, for it now, but essentially what is a religious belief? You know, I mean, is the question, right? Like uh, what, what separates a religious belief from, you know, a belief in general um and um and well any metaphysics is yeah. basically yeah if, if something <laughs> but, is be, be above you or beyond you be greater than you it's essentially a but but you know i was thinking um uh, can we roll back because i'm uh just thinking about people who might listen if they uh know very little about the kind of it's sort of the essence of what we're talking about and what you've been writing and thinking for a long time. Uh, so if we want to, if I kind of want to roll back and ask you, how overall, how did you discover, I guess, this holistic, <laughs> I guess, approach to life? Um, because it's also a lot of it is practical, um, not just metaphysical. And, uh, yeah, did you grow up Christian? Basically, what is the, <laughs> what is the origin story of all of this? Ah. Uh. Yeah. Um, so I actually grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, mm -hmm. I've written a little bit about this. I, I was once, once subject of an exorcism, um, which was quite fun. I, I don't recommend Whoa. it. Oh, wow. My, Your parents did it to you? Uh, uh, no, th th uh, my, this was, it, it, it's a long story. I've recently written about it, but, um, I was, I was, I was held down by a pastor and four other people while demons were, cast out of me. It was, uh, it was great fun. Oh, wow. Um, but my experiences have always been very strange. Um, it, that I've always had very mystical, I guess would be a word for it, uh, experiences that I've, I've attempted to weave back into my life. And I've always sort of had to change my ideology when my ideology no longer describes w what is happening to me. So I, I guess I fell into paganism, um, maybe taking some of the threads of a kind of Christianity that uh, I had experienced for a little while. Um, in fact, I used to tell people that the person who made me who made me a pagan was a uh, an Anglican priest. 
because I attempted or I attended a, a an Episcopal church for a little while, and I would look at these rituals and, and say, "Well, huh? is that really Christian?" <laughs> and 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 she had told me, uh, "No, actually, some of this we took from the pagans." And suddenly, I started thinking a lot more about that and looking for other things that were taken from them. Um, I, I don't know how I discovered it. I, I mean, for me, it, it, it it's always felt very organic or something that I stumble into. Perhaps I've specifically tried to find certain things. There's another securitist route here that um, I, I guess maybe some people would find surprising, but, um, you know, cause I, I considered myself a, a leftist. Uh, that term doesn't really mean anything to many people anymore. And it means the wrong things to other people. But having read a lot of Marx and then later on reading a lot of Marxists, including Silvia Federici, um, mm-hmm. I, I started getting a sense of what we had lost with industrialization, what what the world had been like, the, the way of looking at the world, the way of relating to the world and, and, and noting that all of these, well, many of these problems that we have now can be traced to that point. Uh, the point of the birth of the me- mechanistic worldview, as it were. Um, a really profound influence on me was Silvia Federici's book, Caliban and the Witch, which is not a- about paganism at all and not really about witches either. Uh, her book is specifically a attempt to understand the proletarianization of Europeans, how how we all lost, well, everybody in Europe lost their identities, their more organic identities of being related to each other in a village or through blood or through culture, and instead got turned into the working class. And understanding that process and then asking myself, well, what, what was it like for them just before this is really what got me started thinking very seriously about what paganism can mean rather than what it is. You know, let's be honest. If you were to ask most people what paganism is, they might, they might refer you to somebody who is wearing a Harry Potter hat. Um, There, there are lots of very silly people. Um, I I tend to call them the neo-pagans. Um, but paganism means, you know, oftentimes, oh, let's go dance naked in the forest uh, and talk to the goddess or what have you. But beyond that, I, I see that just as a, a bit of a commercialization and also a uh, this is what happens when people are so far away from any sort of organic connection to land that they start trying to borrow from fantasy fiction in order to make make up something uh, to, to, to fill the hole in, of uh, what's missing. So I, I mean something different from that. I, I don't mean the, I don't mean the Wiccans or the sort of people that you might see on television, but I mean more this, this pagan mindset, which can also be accurately called animists. And if you call it animism, then we're not talking about something that went away at all because there are plenty of, in fact, still, I think, close to a majority of the world, particularly in the global South, who would qualify as animus. Their beliefs would be animism. Um, mm, so yeah. so that's much more what I mean um, than probably what 
people might suspect. Mm -hmm. And that's why you, you even reject this term neo-paganism because nothing neo, it's just what it is, right? You, you don't use the term uh, neo. Yeah, correct. Mm -hmm. And, and also uh, for a while, I, I, you know, I had debates with close friends about whether or not it was even worth holding on to the word pagan because it was so mm -hmm. tainted. And, you know, it, it, pagan itself was originally a slur that the Romans used uh, about rural people, you know, the, the people who are still holding to the old pre-imperial religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And then when the Christians took over, they then referred to everybody or referred to everyone who was not a believer, who was not part of the uh, army of Christ, as it were, as a pagan. So it's, it's always been a slur. So why hold on to it? But then, you know, I'm also gay and I'm okay with faggot. So why not hold on to pagan <laughs> as well? That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, sometimes words change meaning and, you know, it's the same thing of, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I was surprised that, again, it's the, the, the Indian or American Indian or, you know, Native American tribes, you know, still prefer to go by, you know, the, you know, Indian rather than any other name. I mean, and then, and then of course, specifically then the tribe that they're from their own tribe, but you know, it's, it's change. These things change meaning and lose its, lose its kind of, I don't know. It's basically con conquer kind of context. Right. Um, um, so, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I mean, I don't know. It's helpful uh, just from a personal perspective. I like, so, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I like it. It's, it was helpful to me because what it does is it sort of signals, Again, you know, this, it's hard to even, why I kind of like your book is that it's, it's not like, it's not uh, dogmatic or anything like that. It's, I mean, in a way, it's tries to kind of come up with a language and a kind of way of thinking about this stuff through history and through, you know, a, a bit of a, you know, a sort of personal mystic mysticism and things like that, but just a, a way of groping in the dark for basically a kind of, a way of thinking that's, I guess, it has always existed, but we've just sort of, you know, it's been tarred and um, and maligned and kind of belittled. Um, so it, do, it does help signal that it's, you know, it's something that kind of is from the past. Although, you know, again, it's something that it's it's synthetic in a way, right? Because it's you kind of create your own uh, paganism as you go along, or, or, is what it seems like. But yeah, I like the word. Me too. You know what um, I'm, I'm interested in? Um, I love Sylvia Federici too, but um, I'm curious how in your head or how you synthesize it because you quote her and you praise her um, outlook on things and she's basically a Marxist. And then in the same like chapter, you would mention someone like Blavatsky. For you, there's no contradiction. It's all a continuum, right? What, what certain people would, would think is um, maybe isn't, can be antagonistic. Um, did I did I mention Blavatsky? Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I I forgot about that. Uh, okay, <laughs> maybe it doesn't matter then. No, you know, <laughs> I remember that. I, I think it was just mentioned um, in passing. I think it was just because you. I'm trying to remember where it yeah, was. Yeah, not quoting, not quoting from from. It's from funny, her. you know. We, I've been to the Blavatsky oh, okay. um, Theosophy um, like center in uh, Ojai. Um, yeah. So for you, she, the theosophy and like specifically Blavatsky is, um, is not, you basically was just some passing. It's not something of any importance for your synthetic, um, kind of symbiotic. No, not at <laughs> ideas. all. Uh, I mm -hmm. mean, the, okay. the theosophy is interesting to me, um, specifically because, you know, with theosophy and the golden dawn, um, 
it did influence a lot of the uh, fin de siècle thinkers, uh, Yeats particularly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I kind of think she's full of shit as well. Um, yeah. I'm sorry oh, totally. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not supposed to say that, but why not? Yeah. Why um, not? You can say whatever you want. You yeah. can say it to us. We're, we're Russian. So we're, you know, we, we have, she's a oh, good okay. scammer, I think. No, good I mean, Charlton. they're interesting oh, yeah. because they, yeah, they're like, they try to create their own religion, right? Their own, their own. Uh, I actually respect, religion, I respect religion, anyone yeah. who tries to create <laughs> new religion in a way, yeah, unless it's too evil. What's interesting to me is, is a lot of these scammers and charlatans ended up inadvertently coming up with something anyway. Um, the right. best example of this would be Gerald Gardner. Gerald Gardner was uh, was completely full of shit. Uh, he founded Wicca, uh, him along with uh, Dorian Valiente. And Wicca is a completely fabricated, made-up thing uh, that claims to have a very ancient history. Uh, he, he had made-up stories about how he was initiated in the forest or whatever. And... and uh, on the on the face of it, you know, it's 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 bullshit completely, and yet it works extremely well for some people. And I've seen some very powerful um, magic, as it were, come out of that. But that I think points a little bit more to um, again speaking of Sylvia Federici that that you know our idea of what is natural, our idea of what humans are capable of is very limited now within modernity. Um, you know, in one of her essays, she, she mentions how uh, there was a Polynesian people uh, who they were able to navigate in completely dark, cloudy nights uh, across the ocean merely by listening to the waves. That sounds like a completely absurd thing for people to be able to do. And yet, if that is your life and that is a necessity for you, it's quite possible you might learn how to do that. And so what often happens, what, what is described as magic uh, or as supernatural now uh, and then also dismissed, uh, very often is something that humans have always done in some way or another or that some humans have done or learned to do. Uh, so uh, calling it supernatural doesn't work. And I, I try to really focus on that in the book as well, that, uh, you know, I, I don't believe there's anything outside of nature. That's, that's not, uh, something I believe at all. I, I, I don't believe in some external transcendent reality. Instead, I think our ideas of what is natural and what is reality are just very limited at this moment. Um, and that isn't to say, oh, you know, we can all do ESP or anything else like that. Um, <laughs> that sort of scientism is a, I think, an attempt to acknowledge that, wait, humans are doing something and we're going to call it this and say it's something that can be trained through scientific methods. But I, I just you know, in the same way that our senses tend to atrophy or our skills tend to atrophy because of our lifestyles, like, uh, you know, the things that my grandfather knew how to do, the things that my grandmother knew how to cook or to grow are things that are completely beyond me right now. I could learn those, but those skills have not been transmitted, not been important. There are a lot of things that are just not important to us now, particularly because we have the sense that everything is provided for us or should be provided for us through the capitalist market. 
But you specifically grew up in Appalachia, so like in the nature. So in a way, for you, it's like a bit of a coming back home, like this sort of, um, you know, being close to nature and the ideas that come with it, right? Uh, for you, yes. it's not as alien for yeah. most people. I'm, for instance, like a city person of multiple generations. It's very hard, even though I'm like very attracted to <laughs> to this. Mm-hmm. I, I, like when you say uh, I grew up in nature, I mean, I, I, my house, the house that we were living in was a very old rotting house where nature was li- literally living inside of it. <laughs> um, so it, it wasn't so much that I was going out into the woods. It was that the woods were, you know, taking over what little bit of, <laughs> of structure we had. Um, but yeah, I, I think... I think also a lot of my last few adult decades have been attempting to make sense of all of the experiences I had as a child there. Um, Appalachia is both a very beautiful and very awful place. Um, You know, not far from me were some caves that were incredibly beautiful, but I couldn't go inside of them because that's where everybody dumped all of their the trash. Uh, there, there were old washing machines and old refrigerators inside of those caves because nobody could afford to, uh, to take them to the dump. You had to pay to do that. So people just trashed, you know, these very magical places. So I got to see both enchanting nature and the, I guess the disenchantment of nature through modernity, um, all in the exact same places. And, and the rest of my life has been trying to make sense of that. Hmm. I, I think your question though was was about uh, the rural versus the urban, correct? Uh, a, a bit of you know how to access the same sort of thing, or well, no, it just seems like um, I mean, re- reading a bit about your life that you shared in the book, it, it seems that say f- finding <laughs> paganism, it just seemed to me that for you is um, something of a <laughs> coming back home again. As, as you confirm, if, yes, if you're in yes. a way, the wood, <laughs> the forest or something was taking yeah. over your house or the water rather than you just going on hikes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, and where I'm living now in Luxembourg, the landscape is, is very similar to the landscape in Appalachia. It's uh, sometimes very eerie uh, when I'll look out mm-hmm. and say, wow, I, I feel like I remember this. Maybe I do from another place. Huh. Yeah, it's all I'm saying. Not that I'm I'm not demean, demeaning your intellectual pursuit. It just seems um, that what you've found as a belief system for yourself feels um, seems sort of I don't know natural. Yeah, yeah. It, it 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 feeling or emotions or or wisdom or anything else like that are definitely a equal part of this. Um, you know, I, I've I've tried to explain some things through just intellectual discourse, and it mm-hmm. just doesn't work. So sometimes right. I'll just say, "Hey, this is what it feels like." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because not everything can be parlayed <laughs> through intellectual through, through references to sources. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But but even though this book is intellectual pursuit, and uh, one of the things I really liked that um, you would talk about alienation from the body in the same way Marx would um, uh, would write wrote about alienation of the worker from from the fruits of their labor, right? In the capitalist system. I found this very interesting. I see those as the same thing. Yeah. I mean, the, because uh, 
you, you definitely don't see this in Lenin and Stalin later on. But, no. But there is a, there's a slight hint in, in Marx uh, of the sense that the that labor is a magical power or is a, I don't know, let's, let's call it magic for now. I mean, you know, he uses a lot of alchemical language in, uh, in Das Kapital. Um, but the, there's a sense that, that the labor that humans are, are alienated from is something integral to them. It is something that makes them human. Um, it's, it's the power that we have to turn things around us into things of value. And if you take out the economic part of that, which, you know, economics from Oikos, like is, is just, you know, this, this idea of how things are managed or, or moved around, but, um, and, and coming from the idea of the, the home, the domestic, but for Marx, there's a sense that, um, you know, something's been stolen from us and, and, and that is the alienation of labor. But that, that labor is something that is connected to us. It's something that we do. It's like this, this, this human striving or this, you know, the way that we touch. It's, it's our magic. It's our power. And that same alienation from what we are capable of is also the alienation from what we are or where we come from. Um, a good way of putting this, you know, the, the alienation in industrial society is that we completely forget that the stuff that we eat grows in dirt, um, that someone is growing that. So that's the labor, but also that it is growing, um, being it is life, it is nature, and we're alienated from that as well. We're alienated from all of these processes, all of these connections. Um, Marx only primarily identified labor. And I think others, especially Federici, have uh, brought up the fact that, you know, we're, we don't even know who we are, nor do we know what we are capable of, nor do we even understand that, you know, we don't have bodies. We, we are bodies. You know, there is... We're, we're not some machine that must go to work every day in order to get money to buy things that needs to go into the machine to fuel it so that it can then work some more. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're flesh, flesh and blood and shit and all of these other things that we've forgotten that we are or almost as if, you know, it often feels like we're running away from those things, but there's a lot that's been done to make us not feel comfortable with our bodies not feel comfortable being bodies. Those things can't be run away from, right? They're, they're catching up with you. Because I think the whole, I'm not American and, well, Russia is a different society, even if not, like, definitely not pagan, but living, moving to America and living here and seeing that there's a whole huge industry of mental health, it seems like connected oh, yeah. to what you're talking about. <laughs> like a conception, not that I'm against someone seeking help and all but that. But just mental health, but, yeah. <laughs> um, no, or seeking, I'm not against someone seeking mental help, but uh, as a big industry, as the whole conceptual framework of it uh, seems very connected to what you're talking about because that's um, you ignoring the body, ignoring all the, <laughs> all, mental, this, yeah. all the cues or whatever signs and yeah. do what you need to do to survive in this industrial or, I don't know, post-industrial society and then it catches up with you. You, you probably feel depressed depressed, angry, or I don't know, crazy. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think of it? I think anxiety is, is, is the big symptom of 
alienation now, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I was diagnosed with anxiety. I, I, I've been plenty anxious in my life as it were, but the only thing that ever helped was, was when someone said, Hey, you know, that anxiety is somewhere in your body. Like it's, it's not somewhere else. It's not just in your head. You are actually feeling anxious right now. There is something that is making you feel anxious. Have you eaten lately? Did you, how much water have you drank? Like little, little questions like that, that, that would remind me, oh, right. Like I, yeah, I, I haven't thought about my body. Wow. I haven't been in my body. I completely forgot I was a body. Well, let me go do that. Oh, I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm going to take a nap. And suddenly the anxiety goes away and, and, and it's not like some magic trick. It's not like, you know, I cured some, some mental problem. It's no, I just treated the thing that anxiety was the symptom of, which is me being alienated from being body. And, and I, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't identify, you know, or I'm sorry, that I think is the, the primary identification. Everyone says, yeah, I have anxiety or, you know, um, uh, I'm so anxious or any of the other conditions that go along with it. And, oh, my anxiety needs to be treated. It's like, well, actually, maybe, maybe your body needs to be you again. You need to be your body again and then see what, see if that helps. Um, you know, are you really anxious sitting in front of a computer or on your phone on Twitter and having all of these really anxious reactions as you're reading anything, well, put the phone down, sit up straight, go for a walk, and then see how you feel. And it's it, that sort of thing, I, I think, is what, you know, it, it doesn't, it need not be paganism, it need not be animism, but there is a organic, non-ideological way of relating to ourselves as bodies that would treat those symptoms not just as symptoms, but make those symptoms go away and, and make us realize, wow, this this modern living thing is really awful for me. It's really awful for humans in general. Hey, let's change this. Well, it's I agree, but isn't there an ideological component in this too? Because as you talk and I hear ourselves talk, there is um, at least like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> a snippet of... Not elitism, but there's something of the kind, because if you're the person who can like have a choice, whether you look at the computer right now or you close it and go for a walk, that's great. Great to pursue that. But what if you're, which is majority of people, um, have to sit and you're some kind of, I don't know what service job or something connected to computers and whatnot for eight hours straight or, I mean, okay, with breaks, but you know what I'm talking about? What if you like majority of people don't have freedom of, of the kind you describe. Um, so there's an ideological element to, to, to this, right? So how you even pursue those things if the society is structured the way it is. Yeah. There's a political dimension to it. And I wonder what would happen if, you know, again, I, I mentioned I'm, I'm a leftist, but that mm-hmm. the kind of leftism that I am doesn't really seem to exist much more. But what if right. everybody realized, wait, you know, sitting in front of this desk for eight hours and not having a chance to go for a walk is making me really unhappy. Right. Let me demand this, you know, as opposed to demanding, you know, uh, more identity related concerns or, <laughs> right. you know, framing it as a, as a, as a thing of elitism, where, you know, where the people who are paid a little more or, 
you know, I mean, I, I, we could turn that around and, and also say that those, those people, uh, those people working for almost no wages in the, the fields, at least they get to walk around, you know, at least they get to be outside. <laughs> they get to be in nature. Yeah, and then they- <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of which there was a, there was actually a mass, uh, mass workplace massacre here, actually just, you know, half an hour south from where we're sitting in San Francisco, um, at a, at a, at a mushroom farm of all places, you know, uh, at a, probably it was like a, some kind of organic mushroom farm, uh, where, uh, a worker, uh, elderly Chinese man, went and just killed a bunch of his coworkers, but it's not clear what happened, but it's tied to the fact that they're all like living in, in, in squalor, uh, frequently on, on trailers, right on the land, you know, on the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's like, and I'm sure that they were suffering from some kind of stress and anxiety, you know, in their bodies. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's obviously, obviously every, you know, just sitting here and listening to you to talk, like, you know, I mean, obviously the kind of pagan is the kind of, I'm not, forget even paganism, the kind of sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, like kind of embodied sense of, of living and, and thinking and being, you know, th- uh, that you're describing in your book and that we're talking about here. I mean, it's modern society, modern capitalist society, and even to some degree, you know, uh, to a large degree, the, you know, communist society in the Soviet Union is actively kind of, uh, you know, fighting against, right? I mean, especially here in this com- commodified capitalist Western economy where, Everything, every kind of ill that you experience as a, as a result of this kind of fucked up system that alienates you from your body, from yourself, from from your friends, from the people around you, from your neighbors. You know, there's a there's a solution to it, and it's and it's obviously immediately uh, capitalized on, and it immediately it's a profit center, right? So mental health is a profit center. Um, any, biohacking, yeah, sure. biohacking is a profit center. I mean, Big you know, one. all sorts of the sort of like self help stuff, right? Uh, for people who are feeling just completely at the end of their wits and not knowing where to, where to turn, right? A lot of people are out there just willing to sell sell them something. Then, of course, there's you know selling you things to make you feel happy to send to to sell for you to buy the latest car, to buy the latest you know gadget, to buy all these things. I mean, the whole system is predicated on essentially alienating you from yourself and from your surroundings, and then selling you the things back to you. But even the self help. That actually targets a little bit what Ray talks about the whole yes. body element of kind of supposedly being closer to your body. It seems to be very uh, product oriented. Yes, usually it's very again the biohacking, the yes, right supplement the product to take. has to be sold to you or like some kind of service. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, sure, which is yeah. I don't know why it has to be that way. What do, what do you think? I would point first of all to that you know, the fact that there is a market for that would prove that there's a problem. Right. You know. The, the, I, I've seen advertisements for biohacking and there's a moment where like, Oh yeah, yeah. I'd like to be, <laughs> I'd be, I'd like to, to be like that. I'd like to be, you know, more connected to myself. I, I want to look like this guy on the Instagram ad or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and it's taken a long time to sort of train myself out of those reactions and say, Oh yeah. Okay. So that is touching a sense of lack that I have. Were they manipulating that lack? Uh, did they give me a false sense of lack or is it really right now that I am not feeling, you know, very happy? And if I'm not feeling very happy, I, you know, buying something isn't going to help because then I'll have to work more and work makes me unhappy. So instead, why, why don't I go for a walk? You know, and sure, like, you know, there's always going to be the people who will say or cannot, you know, go for a walk. But very often, you know, that, I mean, we're all alienated. We're all stuck in this really awful situation where we're trying to find some sort of connection or meaning. And then there are all of these 
people selling this idea that, you know, they have successfully figured out how to be connected and, and how to have meaning and how to feel really good. Um, and, you know, that's, I don't know, that's no different than, than the whole process that got us into this in, in the first place. You know, there's, there's always those promises. There's always the idea that if we, um, and, and in fact, I'd, I'd like to go back to this a little bit um, because at, at the beginning when we were talking about the, the enlightenment and kind of the, the, the way of the idea that it has, there's, I, I'd like to call it also or think of it as a management ethic. Like the, the bourgeoisie in, in Europe were specifically managers. They were a managing class. They, they were the ones who were doing all of the accounting and uh, all of the, the, the juridical stuff and, and, and everything else related to the new industrialization. They were, they were managing everything and they decided to keep managing things to come up with ideas. Utopian socialism is a management ethic. We can make everybody happy through education and more equal if we just do these specific things. And then of course, communism did the exact same thing. Like, you know, I love the, the, the initial ideas were great, but then immediately it's like, okay, cool. We, we had this revolution. Now let's manage it. Let's manage everybody. Let's, let's get them to, um, let's create the society that we can or we should managing every part of human life, managing nature, managing everything else. And that's, that's absolutely no different from what capitalism was in the very beginning, right? that, that you can manage workers, you can manage, regulate their, uh, their sleep cycles, uh, you know, get them to show up at work at a specific time. Um, well, you talk about efficiency, uh, right? Know, this have, concept of efficiency, the, uh, Taylorism, right? Ta yeah. 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 Taylorism. Exactly. Uh, that, uh, you know, if, if we get workers to work this way, then we can get more profit out of them. Uh, that's the exact, same idea as if we plant this many more seeds with this much more fertilizer, then we can get this much more yield. But we do that throughout everything. And, and, and so of course, like the, 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 the trend towards biohacking and all of the rest of that is the same thing. Like, Hey, you can manage yourself better. But mm -hmm. the problem has always been that we keep trying to manage everything. We manage ourselves, right. we manage each other, we're being managed and and actually maybe we should just become unmanageable again <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting yeah no i mean yeah it's, I mean, let me ask you this because i mean i i'm actually because i mean community i mean it seems like you know community is such a important part of what it means to be a human being you know we're communal animals and um uh without some kind of connection to other people in a group of people, you know, we're, we seem to be lost and, and miserable and, and, um, and alienated from, from, from ourselves. I mean, you know, and specifically about sort of pa this pagan paganism is like, is that how, I mean, are there, um, you know, I, I, are there groups of, of people kind of who think like you and, and are the, I mean, do you, are you friends with people like that? I mean, how, how do you, or is it a lonely pursuit where you're just sort of trying to, um, you know, come up with this, um, synthesize this new kind of way of being for yourself. And, um, and it's just sort of you against the world, you know, and who is sort of skeptical of, of you, or is there actually, you know, people that, you, you know, subscribe to a similar kind of, um, outlook and things like that. So, I mean, well, yeah. Um, so yes, there are, and none of them live very close to me. Um, 
I, I have very good friends in France who are pursuing something very similar to what I am, but, um, you know, it's a several hour drive to go see them. But so, so I would mention that, you know, the idea of community anyway, uh, again, another one of those modern problems. And of course you hear, yeah, you hear the idea of community thrown around as if it is something that we're all lacking, which it is. But we are also all already living in community with people. We just don't like them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I live in a, I moved to a very small village. This is the, the most isolated I have ever been in my entire life. But I actually, this is also the most connected I've felt to community in my entire life as well. And it's not the virtual connections that I have with people who think very similar things to I, to what I do, but it's specifically with my neighbors and I don't even necessarily speak their language. You know, I can communicate with them with, you know, secondary languages, but I, I don't speak Luxembourgish. And yet, you know, I am living in this village and I feel very connected to these other people in this village who, you know, most of them know I'm a, pagan druid and they are all catholic or something else um and they don't care about that because i'm i'm just the guy who lives in the village who they see walk around all of the time and they stop and say hi and i stop and i say hi and you know my husband and i got married and all of these conservative catholic people all brought all of these gifts over you know to to welcome me to the village um Mm -hmm. so you know i i think with that again with the, the the sense of alienation when i was in the united states there was all this i was complaining but everyone else was complaining especially you know i guess what you call the woke or or whatever like that that kind of left identity uh sort of thing where everyone's like uh you know we just need to build communities or we need to have more communities or <laughs> they'll they'll talk about communities like the lgbt community as if as if those people actually know each other, you know, I, occasionally I'll still have someone like, Oh, Oh, you're gay. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my brother's gay. Like I should introduce you. <laughs> no, we don't know each other. You know? And, uh, yeah. and, and so we've got to friends network. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like, no, actually community is specifically, what are you, you know, who is specifically around you? No, of course you don't like them or you don't trust them. Well, you should get, or you don't that. know them or you don't know and, them at all. Yeah. Yeah. Or don't, don't yeah, say exactly. no to them. I mean, and, I think that's the key here, you know, in these big cities is that no one knows each other at all. And, and everyone's afraid of each other actually. I mean, that's, and exactly. Kind of, and then yeah. they come up with ideas of what those other people must be like. And, you know, especially after, I think, after Trump or, you know, once Trump was elected, there was this idea that your neighbor is a fascist who wants to kill you. Um, your neighbor might not actually even know who you are or care. But there was this, this, this political idea that you, you needed to be afraid of everybody, which only... Mm-hmm increase that sense of but for you to actually sorry to interrupt to escape that you had to live in america so you're describing to me you're still a foreigner even if you i don't know you speak german or what french you're a foreigner living in a kind of small (laughs) european most neutral place i mean it it sounds great but like you left america because america has a very yeah very hostile kind of in a way really paranoid towards your neighbor vibe at least the cities and i've lived a number of cities already don't you agree this yeah, well, I tell people, and I, it, it might not make any sense, but I, I moved to, well, I first moved to France uh, and lived there for four years. And I li- I moved to France because I was too poor to live in America. 
<laughs> I understand. And, and the, it, it sounds like it sounds like I just said something completely, you know, false. Because, no, like, no, oh, no. how did you move across the continent? You have to have all this money. It's like, no, actually, in in Seattle, I could not afford to to rent a you know two thousand US a month like studio apartment, but I could move to France and afford. 300 a month, you know, it, like it, it was, I didn't, I, I didn't move to, I mean, I hated America. Let's be honest. I, I just did not like America. I always wanted to get out, but my, my decision to leave was, was <laughs> you know, I, was no, a, yeah. I guess an economic refugee, you know, and, and I, I say this to people, I'm like, no, 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 no. You're so privileged to do that. I'm like, no, no, I actually I lived in, in somebody else's garage for a couple of months until I found the place. Um, and, and it was a garage that was full of all of their stuff. So I was sleeping on a couch that was on top of some cardboard boxes. Um, but you know, that's, I, I did that. And then I've, I've been here and it's been a very strange journey. And, and, and here I am now like feeling connected to, to humans, to, to, to literally living human beings who are my friends or my neighbors or, or what have you. Uh, in a way that I never felt in the United States, even though I am completely strange here. I am a foreigner here. You know, I, I, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I still get culture shock, even though I've been here for multiple years. But I, I think I, I would just say personally, this is the first time I've, I've felt rooted to a place mm-hmm. where I've actually felt like I can live a good life here and I could die here. And that would be a good thing. It would feel good to die here. Um, like to return to this soil as opposed to, you know, fighting and and striving just to try to survive in the United States. Yeah, you know, I can very much re- relate to it. I think Yasha as well. But uh, but so intellectually and about your the whole pagan lens, I think you don't actually write about it. What what do you think about this whole? You know, you had to leave your home country, home continent. And you went to Europe to. I don't know, at some different places, and that's where you found sort of community and home. Uh, do you think about about that? So is it more than specific? There's something about not just overall Western uh, ideology, and because you say Western people kind of live in the past, there's enlightenment, there's this, there's that, but also there's something specific to, uh, what do they call it, the new world, like the, the, America, the Americas, the America, that is not necessarily there in Europe as intensely. Um, so, so do you think about yeah. that? Um, how, yeah, basically, how do you think about the whole American ideology in relation to your, you know, sense of community now, to your paganism, to all of this? Like, it always felt as if no one was supposed to be there when I lived there. Like, like, um, you know, there, there was nothing old. Everything was built in a way where, where, there was no sense it was going to stay like, Hey, it's all right. temporary. It always felt very temporary. Now it felt even more temporary on the West coast than it did on the East coast. I'd, I'd lived it's in many younger. places. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. It's younger. And, and you know, I, one thing, one thing that's probably pretty significant is I, I've never driven a car in my entire life. Um, you know, which was possible in some East coast cities and also in Seattle when I lived there. But, you know, the America is built around the car, like it, it, the, the entire everything is built around machines. And if you're not living 
in accordance with those machines, or if you do not buy those machines, or you do not care to buy those machines, then you already uh, started out as being a stranger even there. And, you know, I, uh, there were there were some good things about living in America, and there are some things I miss. I, I will say that, you know, Americans still tend to be the friendliest people I've ever met, um, and sometimes still people will hear or hear when I'll smile at them. They'll be like, "Wow, that was so American. Why, why did you do that? <laughs> What's funny?" Like you know, or I'll be like, "Wow, you're awesome," and they're like, "Yep, that sounds American." Um, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're they're much more reserved here. But right. I, I think that reservation also. I mean, Luxembourg was was occupied by the Nazis for a long time. Like, uh, you know, my my uh, my mother in law like grew up extremely poor and knew that it was always you know possible that everything was going to be taken away again. Um, so that tends to make you a little bit more reserved, I think, than this. Than kind of the American, like, hey, everything's yeah. here and nothing bad is ever going to happen except Trump or whatever. Right. But also, I actually can really relate to what you say, specifically about, I guess, West Coast, how everything is sort of temporary. And also, if you talk about California, because that's where we live, it's also kind of everything is a bit of a movie set. So you can maybe like disassemble it and there's going to be something new. Yeah. And partially like Los Angeles is like basically that. Cardboard, you know, facades. Yeah. Basically, yeah it can be yeah. <laughs> made made and remade. So yeah, there's no sense of well, like... And, and so have you lived on both coasts? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you'll probably, you'll, you'll probably resonate this with this then because... I had a friend in Seattle who had also lived on the East Coast with me, and he was Jewish. And he would always say, oh, yeah, you know, that person's Jewish. And everyone else around <laughs> would be like, how, how do you know that? How do you know? It's like, you can just tell, look at them. Come on. And and I was the, I was the only one who had lived on the East Coast as well. So I knew what he was talking about. Because, of course, you can, you can look and like, oh, yeah, you know, that person's Italian. Oh, they're Polish. So you, you, you just kind of figure that out because there's still – kind of the sense of, um, you know, actual ethnic identity as it were. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's not like a, it's, you know, on the West coast immediately it's like, wow, that's so racist. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's not that that was just the evident thing. Like you don't care that someone's Italian and someone's Polish and someone's Jewish. You just know, everybody just knows that. And no one, True. it's not a big deal. In Europe, it's even more so that way where I, I have gotten to the point where I can tell what city someone probably is from in France if when I'm in France or if they're visiting, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, the same way with Germany, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Because you know, your people live there and, and other people live there for a very long time. Your genetics kind of mixed in this way. So it's like, yeah, most of the people here have these facial features and other people have that, you know, that my, my husband asked me not to talk too much about it very often, but we (laughs) joke around a lot about, um, we joke around about how like there's this, this, this thing where like, cause Luxembourg was, was one of the most isolated places in Western Europe for a very long time. It, it survived because it was a fortress. Um, and, uh, it didn't let many people in and it didn't let, you know, it, it didn't intermarry out very often. So there's kind of the, you, you can look at somebody and say, Oh yeah, yeah, you are, you are very thoroughly bred Luxembourgish because you have a <laughs> <It's funny>. bizarrely <laughs> round head. You know, it's just like you look at it like, oh yeah, you have this, your head is like a weird ball and it's a little too big. Like, yes, you're, you're, you're from Luxembourg. 
Well, you know, um, and, you, and it's, you know what's fun. You know what's funny is that we were in, we were just in um, in Europe. Um, you know, um, in the fall. God, yeah, in the yeah in the fall, and it, it's one of the things that you immediately start doing when you arrive in Europe. You know, is you start getting very eugenicist. You know, it's like you can't help yourself because you start you almost start bringing out the calipers because you start noticing. You know, because again, like you were saying, Europe has all these different ethnic you know groups, right? That have stayed. You know, more or less. Kind of stat, not static, but they're more defined. There hasn't been that much, as much intermixing, I guess, as like in maybe in, in America or in the New World. And so you immediately start, you know, when we were in Finland, for instance, you'd start thinking, okay, like who's who's a Swede and who's a Finn, you know? And you can basically mm-hmm. guess mm-hmm. it. You can you, you can, can tell. Guess, you can tell. Like, yeah, yeah, you can tell because the Swedes were the imperials, you know, kind of. They were they were the overlords, and the Finns were the, <sighs> the kind of the, the better looking. Yeah. Taller, <laughs> sweet. Yeah, it's like the round just, face. I'm not joking. It really sounds awful, but it's usually true. Yeah, there's like the kind of things have a more <laughs> potato I mean, yeah, face. Yeah. So you basically, I, what I what I what I mean is, I kind of get like these Europeans, you know, and their obsession with it's it, you know went to the new world, but you know it, it's the, the Genesis movement was very strong, and actually Sweden, you know, Sweden. What's the guy's name who started classifying all the animals? Linnaeus. Linnaeus. He's yeah, he's sweet. Swedish actually. Yeah. Um, and then of all course right. in England, in England, it's you know big center of the sort of the Genesis movement. And so I kind of understand actually that it kind of began there because because yeah because it just it's it comes out naturally from the landscape you travel around Europe and you're kind of fascinated by the by the diversity of of of, of human um, you know features right and 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 do you want to like uh, you know sort of organize them and categorize them and, <laughs> well, and sort them the- into little boxes and things like that and you know and then put your own like whatever theories onto it yeah yeah, yeah. I, I mean so i thought about this a lot when i lived in france because I, I was living in britannia and britannia really had two well three primary groups of people there were the 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 bretons who originally came from england so they were breton celts and then the the, the gallic celts and then there were the normans um and you you could very easily tell for some people, like, oh, okay, your family has been in Britannia for a very long time. Oh, okay, your family is not. Like, you're from Normandy. You know, you could just see that. And for me, it, you know, not, not being as a eugenics at all, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you, you just see this, like, okay, well, I, I now have a sense of history that I did not have before because I had, I had studied the, the history of that area and I, I knew, about the Norman migrations and I knew about the Breton migrations and all of that. And then I could actually see it still written on the features of humans. And, and I think that, you know, of course in America, like we've lost it. Now there's, there's really great things to be said about that sort of thing, not mattering any longer in, in places like the United States. But what, what one also misses is that sense of continuity, that sense of history, that sense that, oh, you're from that village, you know, that, that people still have here. And I think, um, you know, this is another good example of, of how Europeans are living much more in the past than they believe that they are, you know, or that the past yeah. is still with them because the past is literally written upon the faces of people. Uh, what yeah. past they're from, what village they're from, you know, all of that. But it's interesting because American ideology, like, there's something kind of nice, as you said, about not being focused on this and not, it doesn't matter if you're Jew <laughs> or Paul or whatnot, but there's, um, then there's like a kind of dark side because one of the dominant ideologies or part of the kind of ideological discourse here that you can invent yourself, reinvent yourself, and it's all about something like, um, 
uh, what do you call it? It's like basically anti-old world, anti-Europe, <laughs> and anti-almost historical mm-hmm. sort of process. So, and then there's something very, um, I think it creates anxiety to some degree uh, when this is the ideology that is like offered to you. Um, and then it's also not fully true. <laughs> Fine, anxiety you can probably deal with, but it's not fully true that you can um, just run away from everything you wore or your um, ancestors were and uh, just I don't know just to do something from ground zero build you make yourself, yourself up completely and, yeah, uh, because yeah. it's just factually and it kind of we kind of veered away from paganism from what you wrote I think um, yeah that's that's kind of interesting how here it is a really kind of uh, not only humanism machine the whole industrial ideology is strong but also just human is a separate fully like an individualistic self that can be anything they imagine them to be and this is kind of i want to also there's one point (laughs) that i want want to talk to you about and this also kind of i think um connects uh into the idea that not only we can um become anything we want like professionally anything wise but also can have any body we want right the whole um sort of um trans um i don't even know discourse (laughs) that is uh kind of really picking up here is is also seems to be a continuum of that individualism and the ideology i guess of individualism if i sort of simplify yeah what do you think because you wrote a bit about it you know about your own also struggles in a way yeah um so i i I think Mm -hmm. that sense of you can be anything you want to be in the united states is a consolation prize for not being anyone yet, um, not huh. having any sort of attachment or sense of relationship to a community, to a group, to a place, you know, it's like, Hey, you don't uh-huh. have this, but you have this, uh, or you can do this potentially, but you probably won't because America is a very hard place. Um, yes. following the, the, the birth of race thinking, uh, which, which came specifically about in the United, in, in the colonies in the United States in the, the 1600s before it was the United States. Uh, black and white were, were concepts created by the, the colonial administrators in order to try to figure out which groups should get rights and which ones shouldn't. And this was because you couldn't just say, oh, well, you know, the Christians from this place or whatever, because there were so many different people coming that there was no sense of, you know, uh, a national identity wasn't even quite a thing at that point either. But those identity categories later on became, um, you know, those were the consolation prize. Like, hey, you, you know, you lost, uh, you lost connection to your village. You lost the commons because we enclosed them and you don't get to live where your ancestors lived anymore because you were so poor that you got on a boat and went to the colonies. But mm-hmm. hey, you get to be white. You know, isn't that cool? Um, and, and the same thing, you know, that happened for, for, for slaves as well. Like, you know, Hey, you lost all connection to the whatever, but Hey, now you're black. This is your new thing. Um, so try to make something cool of that because you don't get anything else. I think, you know, identity politics in, in general really is a specifically American phenomenon that, that, you know, it's, or, or this iteration of it, the, the, the kind that is generally identified with the, the left. 
um, where now, you know, I, I have a book coming out uh, later this year from Repeater Press called Here Be Monsters. And I start out telling the story about going out on a date with a guy I really liked who we, we got home. We were actually sitting on my bed and then he stopped me and said, hey, I'm a bat. Um, like, you know, one of those things that fly around in the night, like a rat with wings. I'm like, wait, what? Really? You know, like I thought it was a joke. And then he told me, no, he's very seriously a bat, that this was his identity. Um, and oh, we had to have that's sex kinda as cool. a bat. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a little that's awkward. He, uh, we didn't have sex because, yeah. How do bats but have the, sex? The, Hanging up. <laughs> like, okay. yeah. No, I, I actually <laughs> asked him. I actually asked him. They're rodents. So I guess know, they I, normally. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was meaningful to him. Um, mm-hmm. And it had absolutely no meaning to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I think it was meaningful for him. Or if you look at identity in general, these identities are meaningful to people because they are lacking something else. They are lacking what identity is a poor replacement for, which is a sense of themselves and a sense mm-hmm. of connection, a sense of recognition in other people. Um you know, and, and, and you can extend that to, to what's happened now with the, you know, sexual and gender identities as well. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at last count, there were over a hundred, um, sexual identities that you can be, and you can be several of those things at once. Um, you know, and then with gender, the, the, the newer framework of transgender and non-binary, uh, which are, you know, I, I wrote an essay about this. These these are new terms for something that has always kind of existed in one form or another that other cultures have had different names for it. You know, uh, the the idea of there being you know really strict gender is is really a legacy of the the same framework that people are using uh, to say that there can be more than you know one, more than two genders, uh, but this. When you when you put them back in the the, the context that or that they came from, uh, for instance, for example, uh, what is called two spirit, uh, which is a catch all for there there are hundreds of different uh, names for this in First Nations societies uh, in North America, um, but there's always been a sense that some people have both a um, you know, you, you have multiple souls or multiple spirits and sometimes the wandering soul part of you, the, the part that dreams, the part that travels, all of that, uh, can be, can be the opposite sex of your body. And when you are in that position, you're, you, you're technically in both worlds and then you became a shamanic figure or some other ritually important figure to the people. There was never the sense that, well, actually what you need to do is make your, your body conform to how your, your soul or your spirit feels. Instead it was a, Hey, you are many things at once. That is really exciting. You can teach us, you can instruct us, you can show us things that we cannot possibly see because we don't have that spiritual framework anymore because we've completely abandoned or jettisoned this this uh kind of animist framework what we have instead are these new psychological medical names these these terms to to explain conditions for people and the only solution offered to people is okay well you can 
you know, hey, let me sell you something. And, you know, I can sell you treatment. I can sell you surgery. I can, you know, and that's not to say that that does not work for some people. I would know some people who have had really transformative experiences because of that. But if the only thing that is possibly a, on offer that's going to make you happy as a product, then we're talking about a capitalist problem. We're not talking about a cultural problem here, or we're talking about a lack of something within culture that could actually, you know, give people meaning. So instead all, all they can do is, is, you know, buy something or, or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, get yeah. certain procedures. But, but this is not just limited to, um, like sexual and gender identities. This is the same thing with all other identities. And I see this also, as a problem, you know, with the right or far right, like the white supremacy or white supremacists, like white nationalism and Christian identity groups and all of that, like they're doing the same or they're suffering from the same problem and coming to what I think are even much more dangerous solutions, which is, okay, the only fragment I have is this identity that kind of works a little bit. So I'm going to try to make an entire worldview and an entire politics and an entire ideology and practically an entire religion out of being white or out of being European or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I, th I think everyone everywhere is suffering from the same thing where it's like, hey, we are alienated from each other. We're alienated from ourselves, our bodies, and we're trying to use or we're being offered identity as the only solution for that. And that's not a good solution. That's not working for anyone. Because it also sort of traps us inside our head in a way, right? Because it's, it's, um, oh, yeah. it's a trap in a way. Yeah. Well, and, and, and limits us as well. You know, I, I could pick up any, any manner of identities, you know, like, well, I'm a gay man. I, you know, fag, whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm a homosexual. This is really important <laughs> to me. Actually, it's not. It's just someone, it's just something that I also am. And right. I, you know, I think, yeah, no. This is weird. This is radical. But when I was younger, saying. I <laughs> very radical. Well, yeah. well, when I was when I was younger, I ran into that identity. Like I am gay, and because I'm gay, the the world is like this. And because I'm gay, you're not treating me right. And because you know, and and it, and it felt good, but empty. Uh -huh. And eventually, I just said, okay, no, actually, this is this is not that this isn't right. You know, I, but then when you, when I see other people doing the same thing, like, oh, I remember what that was like. Okay. Well, I hope, I hope it's easier for you to get out of that than it was for me because it was, it was an awful, uh, awful time for me. Do you think that, you know, your ability to get out of the gay, um, kind of, well, not get out of the gay identity, <laughs> more like, you know, just, sort of of like, that is not a bit, okay. Hey, yeah, so you've been cured, I guess. Um, no, uh, what I mean is, uh, <laughs> what I mean is, is like something that, to make that just a part of who you are, not the main yet. defining feature of your, you know, is, do you think it's something, cause if you were in, lived in a place that was, or in a society that was really repressive, you know, I mean, made, made, you know, see, saw you as a threat constantly. I mean, you know, I'm sure you experienced that actually have probably having grown up in a religious environment in a Southern Baptist environment is probably, you know, maybe you didn't talk about it, but maybe that's why the exorcism was being done on you. I, I wouldn't be su surprised maybe. Uh, but, but you know what I mean? Is that like that those kinds of identities are, are almost like as, as a defensive kind of position. But oh, the reason I ask is because, you know, um, well, one of the things that having kind of, uh, uh, I kind of come to terms with my own Jewishness and what it means and studying sort of nationalisms and the rise of nationalisms and, and, and nationalist identity. 
you know, nationalism is kind of almost, you know, it's it's it's, it's an also an a, a, politics of identity, right? It's a type of identity politics where you're creating this sort of fictitious, you know, kind of fictitious group that's brings all these people together, people who don't know each other, you know, don't care for each other really, but putting puts them under one banner because they happen to live in the same place and share some aspects of the same kind of culture. And then you make that the defining feature of who you are, you know, and to the point where you elevate it to the point where you're, you're willing to die for it. You know, you're willing to die for the identity. And, and, you know, a lot of Jews in America, you know, may have, because there is, they don't have much else to, to, to kind of, uh, um, uh, I don't know, like define them as they, they really cling to their Jewish identity, even though, you know, they're only, they're only, the only thing that's Jewish about them is the fact that, you know, I mean, they're just Americans who happen to have some Jewish, you know, ethni- who, uh, who have some Jewish ethnicity, but that is a defining thing. And, 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 you know, some of that is also connected to a kind of victimhood, you know, whereas you define yourself because Jews were discriminated against. There was the Holocaust. And, and so, you know, this kind of identity was a defensive position, but obviously that it's no longer the case in America. No one's, no one's, uh, uh, no one's repressing you because you're Jewish. You're not under threat because you're Jewish, but yet like Jewish organizations still promote that, you know, sense of their identity that they're always under threat. There's anti-Semitism everywhere. And it's a big central part of, you know, I know a lot of people who, their Jewishness is primarily how they see themselves, you know. Uh, and so, do you think that if you, you know, if for, for for if you were lived in, a, you know, this sort of gay identity was a, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a def, it's a defensive posture, right, um, to some degree as well, or started out as such. Yeah, I think I think we're always trying to find meaning in things, and sometimes that meaning, you know, I, I think meaning is neutral. Um, I, you know, to be clear, it's, it's not something that just happens with, with, with Jewish people because, um, so I dated a guy in Dublin. I, I lived in Dublin for a little bit and I dated him and his reaction when he heard Americans who had been living in America for several generations calling them Irish Americans was <laughs> like, he was livid. Like, wh- why would you do that? You're not Irish. No, you're American. What are you? Why? You know, you, you don't live in Ireland. Like, shut the well, fuck you- up. Like, he was so angry about it. Like, what? Why would you do that? That's, well, that's, that's absurd. <laughs> and then so I had to explain to him, uh, uh, that's America. You know, like everyone you is have trying to have to your identity. You know, you have to have your identity, right? You have yeah. to have your group that you associate with because there's – Because there's nothing. Because there's nothing else, yeah. Um, because really. there's nothing else, yeah, exactly. I, You know, I, I don't – I mean, I, I, again, I, I think identity is, is neutral if you look at it as clothes you wear or something you put on that is also something you can take off. You know, there, there are plenty of times when we, you know, we wear clothing that is not necessarily comfortable because that, you know, that's, that's correct for the event. Like I've, for the first time in my life, I own a suit. I had never owned a suit because I was a punk in America, but now I have to own a suit because I go to, I go to dinner parties in Luxembourg, you know, and, uh, it's a very uncomfortable thing, but you know, when I wear it, I am wearing an identity, uh, you know, in order to be part of something. And then when I come home, I take it right off. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll take it off on my way out the door of the party. Just, I don't want to wear this any longer. Um, I, I think identity is probably useful or, or identity works when, when it's, uh, and, and it's probably healthy when we look at it, something like that, like where it's like, Oh, okay, I'm going to wear my gay identity right now. You know, because I'm going to a gay party or a gay orgy or whatever, you know, like, sure, I'm, you know, I'm going to gay it up right now. Um, but then when I leave that party, I'm going to take yeah. it off because this is just something I wear. 
Um, it's just, you know, not necessarily, sometimes it's a mask. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we try to hide ourselves behind it. Um, but when we overly identify ourselves with those identities, we forget that we are also all of these other things, you know, I, yeah. like I'm both a brother and a son and a husband all at the same time. These are all three identities that I, that I wear. What's the um, most important one? You know, if you have to choose yeah, one, and that's the problem. Like what's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. important there. And it's like, well, they all are depending on the context, but depending on the relationship yeah. or, you know, who I'm relating to at that moment. Speaking of identities, um, I think it was um, being body or no, um, on, on your substance. It's pretty recent, I think. Uh, fairly, oh, no, it's not. No, it's no, like no, probably not a maybe a year one. or so ago. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things that's interesting, obviously, you say identities can be neutral and good and, and fun. <laughs> but when it was the, the, in the essay, you mentioned that for for a while, you've, you kind of felt basic not transgender but you felt like a woman trapped in your body that is not a woman's body and then once you basically found this i guess paganism or also really uh get connected to your body and started feeling good in it um that completely went away that was definitely an experience i had i mean again i, I cannot possibly speak for everybody mm -hmm. on this my own experience was feeling feeling like i was definitely not a man You know, mm -hmm. and, and thinking, well, if I'm not a man, then I must be a woman. Um, right. And, oh, this person accused me of being feminine. So maybe I am actually feminine. And then also, you know, that tied in very, uh, you know, I was, I was a Christian at the time. I didn't have much framework for, mm. for being gay, nor was it allowed. Um, but, you know, I desired men. Well, like, well, women desire men. So mm, therefore, maybe I'm a woman. And, you know, there, there are multiple times throughout, especially my adolescence, where I thought, wow, I was born in the wrong body. Um, but looking back, my, my answer to this later on was, oh, no, I just was really unhappy with being a body. I just, I hated my body. Um, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like what it was. I didn't, it didn't feel like it felt in. It didn't feel like there was any place for me in the world. I, I you know, I, I just didn't like myself and I didn't, especially the, the, the body part of me. And, and, and so later when I started getting more okay with being a body, you know, I noticed that that kind of ebbed, uh, mm. to the point where I realized, wait, I don't, I don't think that any longer. Hmm. How did that happen? And, and at that point, like I, you know, I didn't know anybody, I, I hadn't heard of transgender and, you know, I'm old enough that, that the majority of the people that I knew who were, um, called themselves tranny, which you're not allowed to say that any longer, but they still use it. And, and some of my old trans friends still say, no, I'm a fucking tranny. Like tell the young woke to shut up. I'm a tranny. <laughs> um, you know, and, and their experiences were, were I think informative to me later on because I'd, I'd, I'd look and talk to them like, mm, no, that's, that's actually not what I felt. You know, I, I felt something different. I just did not like who I was and I thought that I could change it. I, I thought that becoming someone else or taking on something else would, would be the solution to my, all, all of my problems. I, I, I cannot say that that's what's happening, but I also cannot say that I don't suspect that for some people that is. I, I have several friends who were formerly trans who have gone back to identifying as their um, birth sex, as it were, or however, however we want to say it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they've had different reasons for it, but in all cases, I've noticed that for them, it was extremely hard after all of the kind of applause and the, the rush of, um, support that they were getting when they said, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm trans or I'm this or, or what have you. Uh, when they said, Hey, I'm no longer this, I think I'm, I'd like to go by he again. And I yeah, just call me a man. Okay. Um, uh, people were angry at them. Wow. Um, and, and so that kind of gives me a sense that, you know, the, what's going on is, too shaped by politics for us to really understand what's happening underneath that there's that people have a political investment in it being one way or another uh, because they need to see the world that way or it's because of a larger political project when uh, you know the the idea that it must be the same way for everybody or this must be the thing that is happening for everyone is is also again part of the problem it's you know, the, the old leftism that I knew would have completely rejected that kind of idea where it's like, Hey, be whatever you want. That's awesome. And I'm not going to tell you how to be that person, but now it's become very, very quickly. This is the only way to be this. This is the only way to be gender variant. This is the only way to be sexually variant. This is the only way to be a homosexual. This is the only way to be non-variant or whatever. You know, we've, we've, we've gone back to a kind of Puritanism or a kind of, um, Apollonian like morality where, uh, you know, we're trying to regulate it. We're trying to manage it. We're trying to categorize everything into things that will not shift. Yeah, exactly. At the very same time that we say that we're, we're, we're trying to break out of this binary, we've, we've created even stronger binaries that are, limiting people even further yeah mm-hmm. no instead of something that's kind of liberating it's become it's come yeah it's interesting it's like the the whole just you know it's basically an outsider kind of looking in looking in on this sort of the culture war that's around it now you know it's in, kind of inescapable um it just becomes such a you know almost like i don't know yeah there's such a I don't even know what the right word for it is, but yeah it's not just not fun it's like militant um, radical kind of anti um anything fun and it's like and it's but it's like this thing is connected to your sexuality which actually should be fun and should be you know kind of uh i don't know superficial and and kind of i mean there should be a, a, a something playful. playful about it right and it's like the playfulness is just not it's, it's, allowed <laughs> it's interesting yeah it's like become so 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 mean in a way um yeah it's interesting yeah it's you know it's great that you sound very um not just what you say, but even how you sound. You sound very uh, kind of grounded. It seems yes. like you're in a really yeah, I'm kind of jealous good in place. a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, as I would say, that this is the solution I found. You know, I, I don't know what is good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not going to try to impose anything on anyone. But the experiences I've had and the experiences of, of friends of mine who you know have been through this, like they. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they came to solutions that worked very well for them that are not the solutions are, that are necessarily on offer right now. And I think with, with political ideologies being so, uh, influential on how we, we talk about these questions, I, I think, you know, we have to look at that first and, and, and ask what is the, what is the purpose of these political ideologies? Like, you know, going back to, you mentioned Jewish identity before, like 
the the one can say absolutely anti-Semitism was a huge thing and is a huge thing still in some places. And it's really important to bring this up all of the time. But what happens when you, you make anti-Semitism the, the primary, um, the primary devil, the primary, uh, bogeyman, which should then define what it means to be Jewish, you know, um, the same thing, like homophobia. Like if, if if homophobia is is what is defining your experience as a, a homosexual, then you know you're you're not actually experiencing an authentic connection to that idea. You're just you know trying to construct something out of its out of its negative. And I, and I think that might also be what's happening with with sexual identity and, and gender identity right now. There's you know, I, uh, especially because there, there are so many ways to be a man, you know, like I, you know, my husband tells me I am the most masculine man he's ever met. And I'm always like, really? Like, I kind of feel not really masculine. Um, but with those two or, you know, with his idea of what, you know, oh, okay, that's really masculine. And, and my idea of like, oh, is that really masculine? That, that, that shows that, wait, actually, there's just multiple ideas on this. And you know, there's as many different masculinities as there are men in the world. And that's a whole lot of them. And it's the same way with femininity and all of that other stuff. There are plenty of ways to be these things. And when we limit it, you know, or when it is limited for us and we decide that we have to, you know, r- revolt against those ideas by becoming something else, I, I'm not sure that's that's really an authentic way of or even a helpful way of, of, of trying to find peace with who we are. <laughs> it's a good, uh, probably it's a great way, great, a positive, um, note on which to end. Um, yeah, but you know, one more thing though, um, since to me, <laughs> no, just that's why, it's fine. one no, no. more thing, but, uh, since to me, I mean, your way of thinking and uh, your book is an extension of that is actually like very revelatory. Overall, I think you're, um, you're actually very prescient because I think it's turning there as I, I kind of started um, asking you about, do you think we're kind of living through the end of enlightenment or something? Because I think, I mean, I personally think that we do to some degree, even people who don't know the term enlightenment or didn't think about the historical progression, they're just sensing something as not like not making sense or not being happy or things don't come together like the just a lot a lot of elements of this world order not working and so mm-hmm. the paganism in a way is a i mean a great and actually maybe also the only answer to to this because you know as we're killing animals and the planet maybe this way of living is the only way yeah. Um, to live in the future. I don't know. Generations later, you know, I would avoid it only, but, um, but uh, there's an example I used in an essay. It was one of my most popular ones on Substack, uh, called, um, the garments of the goddesses. But I, I was explaining what, you know, here in Europe, uh, you know, the, the animist peoples before, uh, Christianization and then modernization, saw the forests and saw the rivers as deities. Um, mm-hmm. And they had different relationships to those than what we would think of as, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily worship. Um, and it's very difficult to think about a plurality of gods or, or of polytheism when 
the only kind of theism anyone most or most people know is monotheism. So, you know, to, to say, oh, no, the, the river was not an all-powerful god. It's like, well, then why was it a god if it's not all-powerful? It's like, oh, okay, no, that's just a story that is told about the Christian monotheist god. But the... You know, there was always a sense that if you treated the forests poorly, if you did not do what you were asked to do, if you did not live in good relationship to it, um, then that would make the spirits of that forest, it would make the forest or it would make the god who was inhabiting that forest or belonged to the forest or whose forest it was angry. And there would be some sort of consequence to that. Um, the, the general idea was that you know, if if you are not in a good relationship with the things around you, with you know nature, as it were, and they didn't even have a concept of nature, it was just with the things around you, like with this river and with uh, with this forest and with these animals, then there was going to be some sort of consequence. Now they believed it with a sense of like spirits or, or what have you, but. And, and that idea went away, and we decided that was incredibly primitive. But now we're realizing that, oh, because of the way that we have been treating the natural world around us, there are consequences. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've come to the exact same conclusion, but it took us very long to get there. And, and we've still written out this, the, the agency of nature, which is something that, uh, that animist people had. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as if it is just a... Uh, materialist um, effect, uh, but but regardless, we get to the same conclusion. So th- uh, these so-called primitive people who believe that if you um, cut down too many trees, something bad was going to happen, uh, were correct. You know, they they weren't they weren't idiotic. They weren't superstitious by believing that just because they had a different right. framework for getting to that reality that we're now getting to, where it's just oh wow, we're kind of we've really messed up everything. There are consequences to our mass industrialist society. It's a really good point because we came to the same conclusion I mean, look, as the yeah, people like, we were laughing at. Us. Like the Gaia theory or something, you know, which is a very, I mean, which is basically, a, you know, by, by this um, uh, guy named James Lovelock, a sort of a scientist who, um, he, he was a co-author with, um, with a woman's uh, with a scientist, I forget her name now, but... Um, you know, it's like uh, uh, people mock it, you know, the guy hypothesis. Um, but it's basically says that, you know, the, the theory is that life on the life on Earth, on, on planet Earth is this interlocking kind of symbi- symbiotic, uh, almost, you know, like epi organism that that maintains the conditions um, that are, you know, Good for good for life on Earth, essentially, and it sustains those conditions. So, if there was no life on Earth, there wouldn't be the same kind of uh, mixture of gases in the atmosphere that are conducive to life on Earth that has exists now. And so, this idea that there is an, an almost like you know a kind of a a uni- unified organism that's interlocking, you know, that's made up of all these different parts, you know, not not unlike you know the, the, how how the human body functions with. You know these very complex systems and these different types of bacteria and and things like that that coexist in this in a symbiotic relationship to support one organism. I mean, you know, these things. This theory was kind of mocked, but I think it's I think it's increasingly seen as a kind of a definitive th- way of of looking at, at, at the world. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree. The the kind of the pagan the pagan beliefs, you know, are kind of reasserting themselves even through scientific means and um you know again like it's a different way you can you can look at these you can look at it as you can 
frame it in different ways. You can look at it as spirits or, or something like that or gods, or you can look at it as sort of, you know, kind of self-organizing uh, uh, systems that it just happened to be this way or, you know, um, but yeah, but you know, you know, and just maybe I actually wanted to get your, get your opinion on this because on the one hand, you know, the stuff that you're, the things that you're talking about are, can be seen as fringe and, you know, and it, you know, a lot of people would kind of mock maybe, and maybe they sort of laugh and maybe belittle, you know, the things that you're talking about. But on the other hand, I think they're common extremely, sense. Main, yeah, they're common Practical. sense, but they're also they're extremely mainstream. Like, I, I mean, I haven't seen the new, um, the new um, Avatar film, you know, but in, in essence, you know, um, the message in the first one, and I think the second one is a kind of a continuation of that. Is like is is that kind of is a very um, pagan, uh, you know, narrative there, right? And a very pa- pagan like story of of of. of um, well, James Cameron knowingly took ayahuasca yes. and had ideas about Avatar, I think, on ayahuasca. Yeah, but but I'm, but so I mean, you know, these are these are like you know actually you know big blockbusters. You know, the, one of the most successful films in the history of of cin- of, of 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 cinema, right? In terms of the market. So I mean, so just maybe like a dr- so so what do you do? You think that these do you think that these ideas are actually a lot more popular than they than they seem to be? You know, um, the pagan ideas. It's just they're not called pagan. They're not called pagan, and and, and they're not like systematized, and people don't think of them that way, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not married to it being called one thing or another. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I think, yeah, I I don't know if it would be more popular necessarily, but I, I, I guess maybe at least it's allowed to talk about in, you know, we're allowed to talk about these things in specifically sanctioned ways. I. The Gaia hypothesis yeah. is is a lot like that. Uh, you know, it's what, what it's describing is something that most animist people would immediately say, "Well, yeah, okay, that's a funny way of saying it, but yeah, that's that's what we believe." Um, it, the, the the increasing popularity of the Gaia hypothesis or that framework, I think, is because it's it's okay to talk about these things this way. As opposed to, you know, sounding a little bit more fringe, you know, you don't want to talk about spirits and energies and all of that. But if you talk about a self-regulating system, then, you know, okay, that's cool. Cause we, we do systems. Systems are an okay thing to say. And you had regulated <laughs> in there. So that fits in with the management. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that that's also what happens, you know, with, uh, I, I didn't know that, uh, he had done ayahuasca, but that makes perfect sense. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. but the, the popularity of those things, I, I think at least speaks to a sense that, that we, hmm. okay, let, let, let me back up and, and, and We're ready. around <laughs> a little bit. My general sense is that if you were to strip away most ideological forces, um, most of the commercial forces, just you know, unplug people from media and and shut up the preachers for a little while so that people had to come to conclusions on their own. They would come to something that looks a whole lot like the paganism that I'm describing. Uh, in other right. words, it's, it's a bit of a yeah. default state or, uh, you know, I don't know if he would, he would necessarily like this, but uh, Giorgio Gombin's uh, discussion of bare life Um you know, what, what life is like, like what life outside of the polis or non-political life is like is, is very much what I'm attempting to describe when, when I speak of paganism. It, it really is what I'm describing. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And and Same I think thing, yeah. that if you were to take off the civilizing force, because you know, again, going back to the the fact that pagan and heathen both were descriptions of places where people lived originally. You either lived on the heaths or you lived past the pagus. Um, so you were a pagan or you were a heathen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those those were people who were disconnected from the 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 hegemon, hegemonic force of the the civitas yeah. or the polis. And I think for those who do get disconnected for, from it, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard because it's, it's everywhere. But if you're able to pull yourself out from it enough, you'll start to feel that same way that is also the kind of default indigenous belief. And that's not to say that you'll replicate the exact same things or that you'll have a claim to being indigenous because of that. But you'll come to conclusions that people have come to for, you know, thousands and thousands of years and that there are billions of people right now who generally have the same sense. Um, but you know, to do that, you have to get out of this, this, this narrative, the, the Western secular, modern industrial, whatever you want to call it narrative that we are somehow living in a special period of time and history. Yeah, no, I like I like that answer of yours actually, because I think, um, it also, in a way, ties ways of seeing and, and ways of, of looking at the world. It ties it to a kind of a kind of a technolo- technology that exists, right? Because what you're describing here is, you know, let's say we're talking about the Roman Empire here, and so the Roman Empire had a kind of, a, you know, it was a technological empire, and it through its through its roads, through its communication channels, through its sort of organized political system and its or, and armies uh, and trade, it could impose its worldview on people, right? And conquer people and impose its worldview and impose its ideas. And then sort of Christianity, you know, kind of rode the back of that. And, you know, then it's sort of just these successive waves of technology, like, you know, the printing press made uh, essentially kind of nationalist identity possible for the first time because it allowed people to print in these localized languages and create these sort of myths, connect people who could read the same language, but probably, you know, could live, you know, hundreds of miles or thousands of miles from each other and have no idea who they, you know, who, who they are, but suddenly b- b- believe that they were the same people only because of the printed word. And then it sort of continued on and on and on. And so these sort of, because of waves of, of technology sort of impo- allow the imposition of, of a certain, you know, and, and the spread of information and the spread of ideas and, 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 and a kind of almost like a prison of these ideas, right? And so if you roll that stuff back, these technologies back, um, a lot of the stuff will fall away with it. <laughs> um, a lot of these ways of thinking and ways of being and return to almost like a default state, of, 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 you know, with, with, which obviously all, all of them probably had local variations of this default state, right? But, but I think people really wanted even like the mainstream, it's just the most <laughs> banal mainstream. Do you think, uh, Ray, that, you know, you, you definitely noticed like this whole rise in popularity of astrology, human design, I think they call it also something else. Like it's just becoming so, I don't know, popular that it's probably an expression. Even crystals and stuff like that. Huh? Even crystal shops are everywhere. Crystals, you know? yeah. yeah but, but specifically human design, I don't know, yeah. human design stuff. It seems to be a kind of unconscious expression of what you're talking about. Do you think yeah, it's connected? I, I, I do for you? think so, but w- one thing I'd also point is that it's it's not mm-hmm. new um, that these things yeah. have been here. Um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, one one example it's 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 always fascinated me, and I, I wish someone would write about it. I I don't have the time for this, but 
Um, it, it, Berlin, just before the Nazis took over or rose to power, had the lowest church attendance rate that it had ever had in recorded history. And it was full of occult societies. There were occult societies everywhere. Um, you know, and of course the kind of Blavatskyan theosophy was, you know, part of that. There's like spiritism and all of that, but there's, there's all sorts of other people attempting to, um, or, you know, doing these kind of esoteric metaphysical, you know, new traditions or old traditions or what have you. And, and then there was a, very large reaction to that. And, you know, we know what happened after that, but I, I think, you know, I, I think that we tend to see these things more often when the, the center is no longer holding when, when the, the, the predominant myth of society, and it is a myth, you know, progress, capitalism, industrialization, all of these, these are, these are mythic. It's a mythic framework for, through which we understand our existence and our place in history and all of that. But as it, as it crumbles, people will start kind of turning back to the other things. Now, there's, there's a dark side to that, too, because it also means that there's a lot of fundamentalism right now. You know, the, the, the fundamentalism that we saw, like with, with Islamic fundamentalism, uh, is, is very much mirrored right now within uh, – Christian fundamentalist ideas, Christian identity movements within the United States, you know, and then there are a lot of new converts to, to, you know, orthodoxy and Catholicism or, or what have you. And yes, it's a big new thing. Converts yeah, yeah. are always the, the most, uh, the most zealot, uh, or most zealous in their beliefs. Right. Um, but I, I think what's happening there is, is people are like, oh, none of this works. Well, let me find something else. Okay. This worked for somebody at some point. So let me try to make it work. But then they're taking too much of the the dominant myth that's falling apart and trying to apply it into this thing to make this movement or make this idea or make this spirituality uh, become the solution that makes modernity keep going. And I think we see a lot right. of that too. You're right. Like, that's know. such a good point. Such a good point. Right. Like, um, yeah. It's just what I noticed yeah. even among acquaintances is, is if they try to incorporate this like seeking spirituality or certain techniques to certain, I don't know, practices just to incorporate it into back into the kind of the capitalist paradigm, fully like, yep, yeah, industrial and uh, ultimately alienated. So it's very paradoxical, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, interesting. And, and I- I, you know, I, in a way, I, I think that's just this, this cycle that we keep seeing with with capitalism in general, where it, it, it looks for something to to prop itself up again. Um, you know, what what is the new thing? Is it going to be identity? Is it going to be this? Uh, you know, these kind of neo spiritualities? Is it going to be traditional Christianity? What, you know, what is it? Someone someone come up with a solution so I can keep going. So yeah, exactly, you know, or then it's marketed, yeah. And these different things are marketed to different groups that are receptive to them, to to them, right? Exactly. So you have a yeah. kind of a yeah, yeah, very you know, it's very, everything is market I'm, segmented, yeah, yeah. Right. At the same time that I'm very optimistic about some of it, I'm also very pessimistic as well because you know, just watching, uh, watching the you know, I I have had friends who are really into this this kind of like newer astrology, which you know, it kind of has a lot of features of much older, like Renaissance astrology, but then it gets applied to 
um, you know, back into modern political ideological frameworks where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, we're going to do a, astrology for social justice or, <laughs> you know, like some, right. something to prop up what we're doing. Um, and, and, but that's, you know, that's very similar to the, the, the older arguments about cultural appropriation where, uh, um, you know, people are, are, are looking through the detritus, as it were, of these civilizations that have been crushed to try to find something to adorn themselves with that, that gives them meaning as some sort of, you know, magical fetish. Um, and yeah. instead of yeah. letting those ideas change them, you know, instead of letting the cultures that produced those ideas also change them, they, they try to just turn them into um, collections of products. And, you know, so yeah. I... Uh, there's reason to be optimistic, but also, you know, knowing how this has gone many, many, many times before, you know, I'm not sure it's going to be the liberation that uh, some people hope it will be. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Have you heard of Reiki? (laughs) Also one of those. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Do you subscribe to that? Some energy Um, I have had. I have had Reiki done on me once by someone who said that they were an initiated practitioner. I have no idea if they were or not. Um, <laughs> I don't remember if I felt better or worse. I, I, I really, it, it was, it was a long time ago. It was 20 years ago or so. I, you know, I know some oh, people who okay. swear by it. And I mean, here in Europe, there's, there are a lot of old, um, I, actually I, so I have a friend, um, who is from Bosnia and he was telling me, and I cannot remember the name of it, but there is a, their traditional uh, healing person who is primarily a woman or usually a woman. Uh, she does something um, that, in fact, the name of her title translated into English is uh, she who washes away fear. Um, and, you know, they, they still practice, they still do these kind of ancient healing techniques. And it's always been, hidden under a veil of either Christian or Islamic prayers. Uh, something very similar has existed in France for an extremely long time called the uh, fire cutting, the coupeur de feu or the coupeuse de feu, where they, they can take the fire out of your body. Um, so when you burn yourself, you call one of them. Um, or if you have a fever or something else is bad, bad has happened. I've done that. And I've had, I've had that done to me and I was really pretty convinced that something had happened. And what's interesting is it's, it's also still kind of done with this, uh, you know, more official religious, um, overlay where, you know, a Psalm is read or someone says something about the Virgin Mary, but, you know, what this appears to be is something that is, you know, predated Christianity and something, again, that humans have always done. So I, I think if, if Reiki or, or any of these other things happen, it's probably that's a very similar mechanism where, where there's some sort of um, something happening that humans can do and have often forgotten how to do. Uh, that mm-hmm. is over or that has a spiritual or metaphysical overlay uh, on top of it. Um, but, you know, I could be wrong. I, I hope there's no Reiki practitioners who have been subscribing to my work who are now going to, you know, do a crusade against me. 
<laughs> that's it. You're Unlike, out. Yeah. Unlikely. I feel like at least I'm I'm a new convert. You converted. You know, if you if you if there was only a, a product, I'm going to subscribe. You know? No, but there's some. Course. No, but yeah, hey, I'm uh, not laughing. But there's some course. No, exactly. Offering. And I, I mean, the product is. I think people, you know, listening to to this, to, to to this episode. Yeah, please uh, subscribe to um, Reed's Substack. It's it's really great. Um, with you know just the Substack economy as it is, you know, you just it's all mostly it culture war garbage. Yeah. But Reed is really great stuff. I mean, really thoughtful. You don't. And so, um, and also buy his books and we'll, we'll link to them. And, yeah. um, and also you have a course, right? That's your offer to I, I people. do. I, I teach a course on the book. Um, the, the next one of that starts in, uh, I think it's March, uh, oof. I believe it was March 18th or something. If I, I, you know, I'll post something when it gets closer, mm-hmm. uh, for anybody. Yeah. Let us know. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll let, and I'll let people know too. Um, uh, okay. I'm sure people would love to know, but yeah, no, Great, it's been, thanks. it's been wonderful. Thank you. Have Thank a you. have a good night. I know it's late where you yeah. are. Yeah, you too. I really enjoyed this conversation. Amen.